Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Toffel. And today we have an amazing show for you. We're going to be talking about hearables, one of our favorite topics. We're going to be talking about Apple joining the Thread Group, a new report from Bain Consulting about the industrial IoT, plus a new June oven, why people aren't buying stuff on the Amazon Echo, arms making some acquisitions. We got some security tips that we thought we'd share. And we've got a new home robot to talk about, plus many, many more things. And our guest this week is Matt Van Horn, who is the CEO of June. They make an oven and they just launched a brand new product that is way cheaper. He's going to tell us how they did that. So stay tuned for that and for a message from Netgear. Before we get to all of that, we're going to talk about the news and hear from this week's other sponsor, Afero. Looking for an IoT platform? Find out why Kenmore and D-Link picked Afero. Afero customers have experienced as much as an 80% reduction in time to market, 99% fewer support calls, and a 10x higher activation rate. Plus, they can reuse 90% of their work from one project to the next. To learn more, visit afero.io. That's A-F-E-R-O dot I-O. Okay, Kevin, let's talk about hearables. We've talked about this before. We had a guest in April who worked at Bose and we talked about, man, that was a fun conversation. We talked about perception and sound and all the kind of things you could actually cram into a hearables. And then you pointed out this Fast Company article on Doppler Labs, which is no longer around, but... It's not. It's not. But it had a lot of influence on what's happening with Apple, Google, and Amazon these days. For those who are not familiar with Doppler Labs, they came out with the Hear One wireless earbuds, and those were traditional music earbuds. Also, they could amplify external noise, could even translate languages in your ear so you could have a conversation in another country. They crammed a lot into these little earbuds, but they face the challenge that many new hardware devices face. Battery life is really tricky when you have such a small thing, such as an earbud, and you're cramming all kinds of processing power into the earbuds. So you're right, they're not here anymore. Even folks familiar with Braggy or Braggy, they had the Dash headphones that were very similar. And just like the Hear Ones, the reviews were just terrible. Braggy is now licensing their software. So, But yeah, this is a good article because it really shows the influence on Doppler Labs. And what I think is, and I don't know if you agree, but maybe the next big wearable type device that we are looking at once we work out some kinks. Yes, I totally agree. And what's more, I think this is kind of the future and not just because I loved the movie Her. I think we've been very focused on screens for good reason. And we still are. I mean, even if we look at things like Google Glass and heads-up displays, that's very screen-centric. But I think we could do a lot with information delivered audibly over the ear and maybe with like a companion haptic device. So Mm. my, I mean, like think about things like directions, like when you're walking around a city and you're just like, you're hearing from the phone or you're looking at the phone to see where you turn right or left. But having a device that can just say, turn right here. I mean, that's amazing. Having a device that you can just ask a question of and get the answer, we have that in our homes. So putting that in our ear for travel purposes makes a lot of sense. 
It does. And actually, we're getting there already in those two particular instances. For example, when I wear my Apple Watch and I get directions, I'm walking around town, or even when I'm driving, when I get to a turn in the directions, it will give me a haptic feedback in advance of it. It'll be like two beeps or two buzzes for a left and three for a right. So I'm already starting to get that in certain places with the Apple Watch. And there are various headphones that have built in Google Assistant or Madam A or Siri, for example, that give you information. What's nice about it is, you're right. It's like a whisper in your ear. Nobody else knows that you're getting that information. I think that's part of the next step here, right? We don't want distracting type interactions. Yes. Maybe we'll stop walking into manholes because that is a thing that happens. So <laughs> yes, I'm excited about this. And then there's the next level, which is, hey, I'm getting kind of old and my hearing is maybe not as awesome as it used to be. So having a device that can, you know, help me hear what I need to hear and maybe fade out background conversations, that's really compelling. And I'm raising my hand because I actually fit into that category. I have problems hearing things when there's a lot of background noise. So when my family's watching TV and they're talking to me, I can't understand them. So I actually did buy a quote-unquote hearable from New Hera earlier this year, the IQ Buds. And again, they function as a music player and they also amplify sounds so I can like sit and watch my TV in my office and not have it blaring so I could hear it because it drowns out the girls watching TV downstairs. So now I turn it to a normal level and just wear the IQ Buds. What? What? Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I had to. So the point is, and the reason why we're talking about it on the show is because I really believe that this is going to be, I'm going to say it, a next generation computing platform. The challenges we're going to have to come up with is figuring out battery life. Things like wireless charging can only go so far. I have some wireless headphones that do last for five hours because they don't do anything other than like Bluetooth connection. But, you know, charging them in the charging case is fairly simple. So figuring out a way to compensate for poor battery life, doing things like better edge kind of processing at low power. That's still a thing that needs to happen. I'm trying to think, what else might we need here? I think battery life is the big challenge because again, it's, it's just a space limitation, right? The computing, you know, you're going to need to cram more and more into smaller chips, but that's a given that's happening. That's pretty standard with any computing platform. There is a technology for mm -hmm. hearing aids so it's called probabilistic computing. And the idea is instead of computing on every zero on one, you compute at a slightly less accurate rate to save on energy. That is a very simplistic way of looking at it. But it is a known technology that people have been researching. The challenge is doing that at scale requires a device that is sold at scale, right? So I'd be curious, as we see major manufacturers like Apple, or I guess Google's hardware or Samsung, will they find enough use for something like that to basically create a whole new type of computing platform around it? I think so. And I just say this because of your very first point about getting away from screens. Voice is the new user interface these days, but there are times when voice doesn't make sense. You know, if your assistant is going to announce personal information out to the world, well, that kind of stinks. So I think we're getting away from the screens and this is the next bridge or next step to add information to you in a non-intrusive way. So I do think there's definitely an aspect there that's appealing. And additionally, just going back to the hearing assistance, you know, hearing aids, I actually looked at them. I mean, they are expensive. I mean, you're talking several thousand dollars. I didn't look and see how long the batteries last. I know they all have replaceable batteries, but that's a pain in the neck. There's a whole new category for these hearables called personal sound amplification products or PSAPs. And that's what I bought. And that's what a lot of these things are. They're not subject to FDA 
regulation. Right. And that's important because anybody can buy them over the counter. Yes. So I wonder what the impact is going to be for the hearing aid industry as a result. Oh, you should listen to that podcast from back in April. We do talk about that. Poppy Crum is her name. So That's it. I remember. Hmm? Yes, she was delightful. Okay. Well, I don't think we're going to solve the hearables power problem anytime soon, but keep an eye out. I know Kevin and I have been for a while and, you know, just keep an eye out for these kind of innovations because they are coming and they're going to creep up on us. And then all of a sudden we're going to have a moment where we're like, holy cow, it's everywhere. We'll call it the iPhone or the echo moment where suddenly you're like, oh, we're all doing this now. Okay. I don't think we're we'll there We'll never yet. talk to each other again. <laughs> Ta-da. Maybe we will. It'll just be on the phone. Next up, Apple joined the Thread Group. Kevin, what did you think about that? I think it's big potential news for HomeKit because it opens up the door to other radio protocols for HomeKit devices. Because right now it's just Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. It's, I mean, Apple's very deliberate. They don't join groups or standards that they don't plan to use. And they didn't just join the Thread Group. They are a sponsor top tier level. They're on the board of directors now. You know, they're paying a sum of money each year now. So I suspect they will use Thread. The question is with what and how. Yes. So in this, I was super excited about because I was like, oh, as you've mentioned before, Kevin, right now, HomeKit is only Wi-Fi and Bluetooth capable. And that leaves out a whole chunk of devices. And that's why we've got hubs for like our Hue light bulbs and that sort of thing. With Thread, which uses the same underlying radio as Zigbee, so that's 802.15.4, what could happen is maybe we'd see Apple supporting that radio protocol, which means maybe we could get fewer hubs in our lives. The alternative, because I have seen ARM actually a couple years ago showed uh, thread over Bluetooth radios, and I've talked to other chip makers who have experimented but don't have production stuff on thread over Wi-Fi radios. So it could open us up to more protocols, but it also might just be like, eh, same stuff, but now you've got direct IP access to the internet, which is one of the things. So Thread is both a mesh protocol, it's low power, and it's IPv6 capable, which means you go direct to the internet. Right. What I would hope for, assuming Apple does use this for Zigbee devices, what that would do is manufacturers would not have to make two versions of devices. Right now, there are some door locks, for example. There's a Zigbee version, there's a HomeKit version. That's a challenge for the smaller device makers, right? So it's limited the number of devices that you have available for choice in HomeKit. If they were to adopt Zigbee with Thread, then that would make life a lot easier for consumers and for device makers. Yeah, because I mean, a lot of consumers have to choose. They're like, am I all in on HomeKit? Because then I've got, yes, a limited class of device, but I also have devices that, you know, they may not work with other smart home hubs. So yeah. Let's see what happens. My hope is that we're going to see some interesting things. So, you know, I dog on Apple a lot for HomeKit. It is well executed, but it is so limited and it is so brutal to be a HomeKit partner. But their slow and steady approach, the the smart home market has not evolved the way I thought it would and the way I hoped it would because I am an open internet fan. So it's possible that Apple could still come out from this and be just fine. It's taken a long time, but yeah, I agree that it's very possible they will really expand HomeKit more than they have in the prior year. So yeah, we'll see. Who knows? Maybe I'll be mea culpa-ing. That's not really a verb, but we're going to pretend it is. So let's move on from the smart home to some industrial and kind of enterprise IoT news. Okay, so this week, Bain, one of the big consulting firms, 
put out a report noting that the IoT is, hey, it's a big deal. The most notable number that you're seeing everywhere is that it is going to be a $520 billion market, and that will be by 2021. It's going to be more than double the $235 billion that was spent last year on IoT hardware, software, system integration, and telecom services. Like everybody, they believe that the enterprise and industrial segments are going to experience the most revenue growth. And they also realized that most of the executives, they interviewed 600, they are admitting that adoption rates are pretty slow. And as someone who follows this space, this is not surprising. For the last two years, I have seen many of the companies serving this space offering me the exact same customer wins. What is happening is I see a few of those customer wins expanding their stuff, but I don't see a lot of new customers that are actually expanding. So they're still stuck at the proof of concept kind of phase. They call that the pilot purgatory. Yeah. And I mean, I worked for two companies that had over 100,000 employees and it was any major change or implementation. It was like driving an oil tanker. You know, it took forever to make a turn. There's just so many pieces involved and so many business units that are touched and you've got to test everything and get buy-in and all. So I sort of get that because this is like a new frontier for enterprise. But what I found interesting in here was security is on the minds of these people that were interviewed. And that's not the surprise of it. It's the fact that Bain says these folks would buy more IoT devices and pay more for them if their security concerns were addressed. I guess they asked them, how much more would you pay? And they said about 22% more on average. Obviously, security is important. We harp on that every show. But the fact that they're willing to pay a premium for what I think should really be table stakes is very interesting to me. Well, and I think it also speaks to an issue with security, which is people would love to pay for it to go away. But unfortunately, security is not something you can throw money at. It's actually a process as much as it is a technology solution. And that sucks. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not making light of everyone's problem here, but it's true. You have to train your workers how to behave with this kind of information so they don't get fished or they don't pick up a USB stick in the parking lot. You have to train your vendors to issue updates and you have to start thinking about that when you start sourcing technology. It's not something you can just pay for. So I'm glad people will pay for it. But at the same time, I think... It's misleading. And I would also say another reason, one of the other big reasons they're not adopting this technology is because they don't see a good ROI and a quick ROI. And I think, again, this is not the type of, yes, there are things that you can do to get an ROI on technology, but this is actually a much more foundational shift. So you're going to be putting in technology that presumably will pay off over time, but only if you understand how to make use of it. So I get why this has taken a while. It's technically hard. There's security concerns, but it is something that everyone's going to have to do. So I don't know what to say. In a couple of weeks, we will have actually someone from Bain on to talk a little bit more about this. So you can stay tuned for that. In the meantime, we'll include a link to the report so you can dig in on your own time and share your thoughts. Speaking of sharing thoughts, Paul, a lovely listener, sent us IoT securities tips from Make magazine. So Paul, thank you so much for doing this. Kevin and I were like, we love Make Magazine. We love Make. And this is for people who are building their own smart home systems and you're running HomeBridge on a Pi or something like that. We'll include a link to it. Some of it's really easy. Like, hey, all Raspbian OS installs use the same password for the default Pi user. You should change that. (laughs) Another, I'll call it a tip, keep your OS up to date. 
yay, that makes sense. It's going to be secure. And some of these are a little bit more technical. So disable password login with SSH. I was kind of like, oh, that is not something that I had thought about. What about you, Kevin? <laughs> yeah, I, to be honest, I hadn't thought about that, nor have I thought or tried. I should say I've thought about it, but I haven't tried setting up a firewall and punching a couple holes in specifically for devices. I just haven't had the time to plan that out and do it. But, you know, it, it does make sense. Yeah, you're running a lot of pies. Maybe you should. <laughs> yes. And so that's if you're going to make your own. For all of the devices, for things that are not your own device, we talk about these all the time, which is, yeah, change your passwords, keep things up to date. This goes a little further. It says disable services and protocols you don't need. Sometimes you get in trouble when you're trying to do that individually on certain IoT devices. So your device functionality may be limited if you do that. But, you know, if you can, using a VPN is also a lovely thing to do. It is, and, and I'm not saying it's a bad solution, but if you, depending on how you implement a VPN and what you use, like if you set your whole home internet up on a VPN and you do streaming services, like if you watch MLB TV, for example, I watch, that's only available in the US. So if I have a different IP address, say from Canada, I can't watch that service. So there's pros and cons to that one. That's true. And sometimes with automatic time updates, if you're in a different, v if your VPN saying you're in a different time zone, you could have your lights wake you up an hour early, which you may not enjoy. They also talk about things like using a guest network. We've talked about that. I don't love it. I actually, Netgear is an advertiser on the podcast, but while we were on the phone doing the ads, I did ask about this. I was like, look, you know, guest networks don't work for IoT implementations. And they actually said that they are working on that to make that easier. When that comes out, I don't know. But it does give me a sense of hope that maybe the Wi-Fi vendors are going to start taking this seriously and create easier ways to do guest networks without actually doing a guest network. So let's move on. Thank you, Paul, for that. Everybody will include a link that actually offers some really good how-tos from Make Magazine. Let's talk about some quick news stuff, shall we, Kevin? We shall. Okay, big news. We're going to talk about it later on the show. The June Oven, which Kevin and I both own and bought for $14.95. That's $1,495. That is no longer going to be the June Oven. They've got a new Gen 2 oven that is out. It is right now $4.99 for an undetermined period of time. Or you can buy the gourmet package, which is $6.99, and that gets you a bunch of trays, recipe service, and I think additional warranty services. Eventually, the price of the June oven will go up to $5.99, but it hasn't yet. So we're going to talk much more about that. But I just wanted to give you guys like, Ooh, this is a smarter oven that we all know and love. And if you don't know and love it, it basically has a camera in it. It recognizes your food. It has preset cooking programs. It basically makes cooking like idiot proof. I'm a huge fan. Yeah, we still use ours at least twice a day, if not more. We barely use our regular full-size oven as a result. And, you know, when I told my wife about this, she was like, didn't we pay like $1,500? I'm like, yeah. I said, but you know what? First-generation product, early adopters, it, that's life. I said, the question is, do you feel it's worth it? And she's like, yeah, we use it all the time. It's great. So she's not even upset about the price drop. I don't know if, how you feel about it, Stacey, but, you know, it is what it is. Uh, you know, having talked to Matt and you guys will hear, you know, I feel okay about it. I understand that we helped. Kevin, we helped make this possible. That's this the takeaway. So look at us. If you guys buy it, you can send us a thank you note by listening to the podcast even more. 
Okay, so Arm has made an acquisition. This was rumored last week, but now it is a done deal. Arm has bought, Arm is a chip licensing firm. They bought a company called Treasure Data. And the idea here is that Arm seems to be, they also brought a company called Stream Data couple months ago, they're moving up the stack. So instead of doing just semiconductor design and licensing, they're starting to think about like data processing. And the closer you get to the solving the problem, one, it's going to have a good virtuous cycle on their chip designs. They're going to understand what they need to build more. But they also, this was not a lot of people are using it, but they also launched a cloud service was roughly, I think it was two years ago. So it kind of makes sense that they're getting more into data management. So Treasure Data does data management tools. They pull in data from a bunch of IoT devices, and they help you normalize it and optimize it. So, you know, I was going to say this also adds another revenue stream for ARM in that with Treasure Data for the data analytics and stream technologies and ARM embed, people who subscribe for a service through those entities will be able to manage and update devices over the cloud. So that's a whole new revenue potential stream for them. Oh, that's true. All right. So that's the ARM news. Getting into data. In the smart home news, we have a fridge cam coming out from a company in the UK called Smarter here in the US. I don't believe we can order it yet. I'm very disappointed. I saw this at CES. I don't even know if it was last year, if it was 2017. But if you're in the UK, you can buy it for... You can buy it for 150 pounds or roughly 100 pounds if you buy a fridge. So I love this because it is a camera you stick in your fridge that also has AI as part of it. They're working with UK grocer Tesco. So you can get a shopping list based on your fridge contents and they send that to Tesco and Tesco will just fulfill it and you can pick it up. I just really want to be able to open my fridge and see what's inside. I can open my fridge and see what's inside. I want to be able to get a picture of what's in my fridge so I can see what I need to pick up more of. I just want to see if the light really goes off. It does, Kevin. It really does. How do you know? (laughs) Okay. So let's see. What else do... Oh, oh, Kevin, I can't believe we almost didn't talk about this. Let's talk about the Anki Vector. Oh, yes, the Anki Vector, which was announced earlier this week. For those who are not familiar, maybe you are familiar with the Cosmo, also made by Anki. That came out, I believe, in 2016. It's a small little robot. It is small. It's just a, I don't know, two or three inches wide by maybe three, maybe four inches long. It's got a small footprint. It is the cutest little thing. I know, Stacey, you love this, the Cosmo personality. It's so wonderful. It's so endearing that Anki, I met with them to talk about the new device. It's called Vector. They said that people send in, you know, their, have sent in their Cosmo because it needs, you know, some, maybe something broke on it, a plastic part. They want to get it fixed. And they're like, my nephew is miserable that his Cosmo had to come back and please hurry. And people get really attached to this because aside from it being just a home robot, it's really a companion. So much so that Anki has hired somebody from Pixar and they animate thousands of expressions and movements. And it just, then they put those into the robot. It's really like a little personality on treads, right? It it is. And it actually, so when you, there are games you play with Cosmo, and we'll talk about Vector in a second. The old one. The Mm -hmm. old one. And when it would lose too many times in a row, it would get mad. It would like jam its little, it has like a little bulldozer front and it would just go and just beat it on the floor. And it was, I mean, it was kind of hilarious, but also it just 
So much personality. Okay, back to Vector. So, Vector looks a lot like Cosmo. Very, very similar, maybe even identical. It's hard to say exactly. I know that they've doubled the amount of parts inside, so on the inside, it's definitely different. In fact, on the inside, it's very different because with Cosmo, you had to connect to your robot via an app on your phone or tablet, and a lot of the processing was actually done on the phone or the tablet. The big difference with Vector is it's all on board. And when I say all, the vision is on board. The neural network is on board. The mapping is on board. Natural language processing is on board. It does have a connection to the cloud over your Wi-Fi network, and that is to access its knowledge graph. Companies such as Google, Amazon have knowledge graphs that their devices tap into for information. Well, Vector does the same, only it's Anki's knowledge graph. It moves just like the old robot does. It actually can tell when its battery is running low to like 10, 15%, and it will go back by itself autonomously to its little charging base. I asked them about that. I'm like, so you can only use it when it's off the base, right? They said, no, actually... Once the battery runs out, he goes back on his charger. He's still available to listen, speak, ask for information, give you the weather. He'll still recognize faces. It's just that if you do any movement with the treads, those suck up a lot of juice and he may not come out of his charging pad if you say, go across to the front window and tell me who's outside. He won't do that. But there's person recognition. There's everything in there. It's all on board running on a Qualcomm Snapdragon chip. And it's a reasonable price. The Cosmo device was $179. This is on Kickstarter. You have until September 6th to back it. It is $199 is the early bird, but when it hits stores in October, it will be $249. Even so, yes, it's a small little thing. It's not going to lift up things around your house and bring them to you per se, but there's so much groundbreaking intelligence in this for the price, in my opinion, that that's why I thought this was worth talking about. And are you going to buy one? I am seriously considering it. I have till September 6th. The early backers will get their vector by October 9th. It will hit retail stores by October 12th. There is an SDK that if you know some Python, you can program it yourself. That comes out in December. And that's kind of why I'm interested, just the how much is on board as well as the SDK, because what got me interested in Anki in general was I saw a video of somebody using a Cosmo pairing it up with Google's TensorFlow and training it to recognize the difference between a cat, a dog, and a shoe, for example. And they would have their Cosmo go around and say, cat, dog, cat, you know, or go to the shoe. And he would wander until he saw a shoe. And to me, that's fun tinkering. And that's what I'd like to do. So I'm leaning towards yes, getting one. Got it. Okay. Well, then you'll have to send me my Cosmo back. Oh, he's I will. Okay. Two other quick bits of news. The FBI is warning hospitals that their IoT devices are being targeted by cyber criminals. This is not surprising. We've been talking about it for roughly two years now. But the FBI is finally like, guys, reboot your devices. They talk about using antivirus. I'm personally like, isolate your IoT devices from other network connections. Basic security. The other piece of news worth talking about just because we wrote about it in the newsletter, but we haven't talked about it, is Charlie Kindle, the guy behind Madame A's smart home efforts. He's now at Control 4, which is a professionally installed home automation and AV kind of company. So I was really excited. I talked to Charlie about this. And the one big takeaway, and you can see the interview on the website, but the one big takeaway I thought was interesting is, one, I asked him, why go to professional when you've been DIY your whole life? And he was like, look, there's just a bunch of stuff that 
it's just too complicated for consumers that you just can't do if you are trying to do DIY. So like whole home audio, whole home video, those kind of things are just really difficult. And I appreciate what he said about the fact that both DIY and professional home installs, there's a place for both in this world. And I, you know what? I think he's right. We focus a lot on DIY stuff, but you know what? We do this stuff. We live this stuff. A lot of people are like, I have no idea where to start and I wouldn't even know how to install it. So yeah, there's definitely a place for both. Oh, yeah. And then the second thing he said that was worth noting is I asked him what kind of technologies he was really excited about still, where the future was still going with the smart home. And one of his topics was voice. Not He's like, we've got a lot of room to run there. Not surprising. But the second was actually high quality content. So he pulled out, he's like, you know, we've kind of sucked at codecs and compression technologies for audio and video for a while, and the experience hasn't been great. So he's looking at things like 4K TV and better audio codecs, and he thinks that's going to actually make a big comeback. So... Hmm. Maybe. I mean, my daughter would rather watch something on, you know, YouTube and stream her Spotify list through the Echo. So this is not a high quality experience, but, you know, maybe he's right. We'll see. Enough about news. Let's take a moment and go to our voicemail from the IoT Podcast Hotline, which, as you guys know, is brought to you by Schlage. Do not miss your chance to win a Schlage Sense Smart Deadbolt and Wi-Fi adapter. All you have to do is call us at 512-623-7424 and leave us a question and you will be entered to win in our August drawing. So call us before August 31st and you will therefore be entered to win. And remember, smarter homes start with Schlage. All right, this week's voicemail is from Noah. Hey guys, this is Noah from San Francisco. I was wondering if you know what a better alternative to Logitech Harmony is. Currently, I use it for automating a lot of my IR bases, like fans and air purifiers, my TV, which is kind of old school because I don't have a smart TV and I really don't want one anyway. But regardless of that, Yeah, I don't like how it's based on profiles and I have to turn one profile off before I can turn another one on. It gets really messy when I have multiple devices that I want to start or stop at once. So yeah, if there's anything that you guys can think of or know of, please let me know. Thanks. Okay, first off, Noah, big props to you for using what I would think is kind of an unconventional technology for this particular use case. (laughs) IR lives. I'm like, I, I was like, oh, instead of the Logitech Harmony, he should go with the Amazon new Kindle block thing that's out. But then I listened to your voicemail and I was like, oh, no, no, not for controlling ceiling fans. Instead, I'm going to direct you to a device that I was really excited about probably early last year, but I'm not as excited about now. But it's perfect for what you want. This is a device called The Bond. It is by a company called Olibra. This is a $99 disc that basically uses Wi-Fi, IR, and has RF capabilities. So it will pair with your ceiling fans existing remote. It will control up to six ceiling fans or six devices. It also works with fireplaces. And the idea is that you can link it to this device, and then you can control it via Madam A or IFT or the app, the Bond app. And you don't have to put in like the fancy retrofit kits for an existing ceiling fan or replace your entire ceiling fan. So, you know, 
I don't know. It works. People seem to really like it. I hadn't tried it. I was excited when they started initially talking about it because they said it was going to do more than just IR and RF. They were going to do other radio frequencies. And I wanted to pair it to my Somfy blinds and put those on because I hate my current Somfy blind implementation, but it doesn't have that yet. So I am sad yet. They are looking at bringing support to other devices as well, though, I think, like garage doors and some others. Yes, they are. Right now, they only have ceiling fans. And my hunch is it will work with things that need to be on or off. You do need for an IR, if your fans are IR and not RF, you're going to have to make sure the bond has a clear line of sight to the fan, which means it's not going to be able to control IR fans in multiple rooms. So that's one thing to note. But it's relatively cheap. If you can use it for a couple things, then great. My ceiling fans are controlled by a Lutron on-off switch, so I can't actually control the speed. This will let you control speeds if you have the speed with the remote. So, you know, 99 bucks. Let us know what you think. And that about wraps up the show this week. Please stay tuned for our guest, June CEO, Matt Van Horn. He's going to tell us how he cut so much money off the price of the June and talk about data and food. Plus, he shares a s'mores recipe for us. All of this coming up after this message from our sponsor. Hey, everyone, we are taking a break from this week's Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Netgear, and I have John McHugh, who is a senior vice president of commercial networking at Netgear. So last week, you kicked it off by telling us that Netgear, while we all know it for home routers, we may not be as familiar with the commercial business. Do you want to talk briefly about that? Yeah, as I said, we target small businesses, especially ones that are like do-it-yourself, small office, home office business, where the IT department is actually the business owner. And we're the best networking company in allowing those people to be successful deploying, frankly, fairly advanced networks. What about security? Because, man, your router is like the front gate into your entire IoT infrastructure. Yeah, that's a really good point. And in fact, if you look at some of the other solutions that are out there, the customers are required to set up complicated tunnels through their security to make the cloud connectivity work. And it's a terrible formula that's going to end badly. And so that's why when we designed Insight, we did it from the ground up to be self-deployable and absolutely secure. What we did was we drew on the same technology we've been using for our ReadyNAS and ReadyCloud solutions for the last six, seven years. It's the same architecture we use with our Arlo cameras. So that means there's literally four million of these agents securely running day in and day out. So by choosing an architecture, which was already simple to deploy, absolutely robust and time-tested, We knew that we would get an experience where customers wouldn't be compromised, which is unacceptable. And do you guys have notifications or maybe some sort of machine learning that understands when bad things enter the network? Absolutely. And that's one of the neat things about cloud-connected devices is because what that does is create a very close relationship between our customers and Netgear. 
So we can do a couple of different things for you. One is we make it very easy if you ever need help or support with your device to get that. We also can immediately alert you if through our network of paid hackers, white hat hackers, that if we find a defect, we can immediately let you know that there's a problem and help you get it fixed. And of course, customers can set notifications and alerts to know what's going on in their network. And the message goes right to the phone in their pocket, wherever they happen to be any time of day or night. And is there a subscription for this? What we do is we provide you a two base level connections. So for two devices, anywhere in the world, you get the ability to do all this cool stuff. If you scale beyond that, if you're starting to get to a bigger network, we do charge a nominal fee. You know, for basic connectivity, it's $5 a year per device. That's more to allow us to continue to invest in the infrastructure and make sure that it's a rich, performant experience. Awesome. All right. And John, where can we go to find out more about Netgear's Insight Line? Of course, www.netgear.com slash insight. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today's guest is Matt Van Horn, who is the CEO of June. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. This week, you guys announced what I feel is like a pretty big deal. You announced a brand new, cheaper June oven. So there are two versions of this oven. Can you tell me about them? Absolutely. So this is the 7-in-1 June cooking appliance. And we've sunset the prior Gen 1 product, which was $14.95. And shipping today, we have a new product that's $4.99 and $6.99. Okay. And the four ninety nine is just the and I keep calling it an oven and you were very careful to call it a seven in one appliance, so we'll dig into some of that. But Oh, it's an oven too, so <laughs> it's the June oven. <laughs> okay, good. I feel better. So the four ninety nine is a hundred dollar off promotion for this oven, and then you have another package called the Gourmet. Is it a package or is it a totally different oven? So it's the same oven, but it comes with additional accessories, a longer warranty, and bundled cookbook recipes. Got it. And that is a subscription offering you have. Correct. So you get it free for three years included with the gourmet package versus paying monthly or yearly. And I am ashamed to say, since I was such an early and enthusiastic adopter of the June oven, I still have not tried the recipe package. I'm just a terrible person. Well, we've got a free trial. Okay. (laughs) Let's kick it off with, man, what I really want to know, which is how... How did you cut this price down so much? Kevin and I beforehand were looking at this. It looks like there's no scale in here. It looks like there's still the computer vision aspect of it. it looks like there may not be a knob. So break it down for me. How did you go from fourteen ninety five to four ninety nine? Lots of little things is the best way to describe it, and I'll get into some particular examples. So. One of the really nice things for all of our customers that opt to share their data with us, which is over 90%, we're able to learn usage patterns and figure out what the most important features are on the June oven. So, for example, our automated cook programs, so our, which some are recognized by the camera and some you choose from a menu, those make up 42% of all cook sessions. So that's our single largest way of method of people cooking is by using our automated cook programs. And so... When we kind of dug into that a little more, we thought about you know, what are the most important aspects of that. And two of those aspects are the carbon fiber heating elements, which heat up so quickly. And we're able to do all of our automated cook programs with no preheat. And so our carbon fiber heating elements are expensive. So that's 
one area where we easily could have saved a lot of cost and decided not to based off of knowing how important that feature was. And then camera, another easy way to take money off of our bill of materials, our bomb. And again, a very important feature to shortcut that access to our cook programs. And so we had that data that those were not good things for us to save money on. And then we started looking for other places. And so one of those places was the weight scale. So we had four load cells in the feet of the original June oven, and we were able to look at the data and see how often people were actually weighing their food. And there are definitely some people that do it a lot, but the majority of people never ever use that feature. And so why should we have our customers have to pay for that hardware of a feature that is not very used? And so we were able to actually use data and usage patterns to figure out that that was an okay feature to remove from the product. Well, wait, so I thought the oven automatically weighed the food and that factored into the cooking time. So we actually haven't used weight as one of the variables. We actually thought it would be a more valuable sensor than it actually was that we would one day use it as a value to adjust cook programs, but we never actually ended up using it. Oh, I always thought you did. Gosh, color me nope. surprised. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, no, I use it every time. It's automatically doing it. It's not. <laughs> no, okay. I, temperature and the different temperature sensors we have are arguably the most important ones as well as the camera. That makes sense. Okay, so you took out the scales. What else did you take out? That's one area. Another area that, again, would have been a great opportunity to save a lot of money would be to get a lower quality display, touchscreen, or computer. And for us, again, we did our homework, and that was not the place to cut corners. And so we still have a 2.3 gigahertz quad-core computer on the June oven, but an area that we did see that people were using touch as the primary method of communicating with their June oven versus using the knob. And so even though we were big fans of the knob, it was a feature that wasn't required, and it was an expensive feature from the one. So the new June Evan, the Gen 2, does not have a knob on the front. It's just a touchscreen. But you can also control your voice using Alexa. Okay, so that feels super controversial to me, maybe because I'm old and I do use the knob. I like having that interface because it makes me feel like the oven will still work even if the touchscreen goes kerplunk. And is that just me kidding myself? I mean, if the computer goes kerplunk, the knob's not going to do anything. <laughs> True. Okay. You, you get to have the limited edition original June oven, so you can brag to all your friends. And one of the amazing things also about the software platform that we built around June OS, so you've been living with a lot of features that you know have barely gotten any press, that we're getting a lot of press on today as new June Gen 2 features. But in reality, it's the same operating system, the same software platform. So you've been getting all these features over the last year and a half for free just as software updates. And our new customers will get to experience all those as kind of their intro to June experience. Oh, it might be kind of overwhelming. It kind of feels like it might become the Instapot where you're like, I don't know what to do with this. No, I love my many new features. Okay, let's go back to cutting costs, scale, yeah. knob, what other things? Those are the primary features, but from other areas, there's a lot of simplification of design. So taking everything that we've learned from how to make a June oven in Gen 1 and what type of decisions can we make on the second generation. Often when you're shipping a first product, there are three key variables and you only get to focus on two of them. So let's call those variables quality, so quality of the product. The next, let's call it time. So that kind of crunch to ship. We shipped our first June oven literally on Christmas Eve. And then the third pillar of that would be cost. And so on the first June oven, we optimized for 
for quality and speed to market. And for this time, we obviously quality is, is still the most important thing, but we oriented ourselves and knew the importance of getting a more accessible price point for the June oven. And so we made sure to build that in and to ship when we were ready. Excellent. Let's talk about the plans for June going forward. I was always intrigued by you guys because you built this product that was arguably smart. It wasn't just connected. It was actually smart, which I really appreciated since I see lots of terrible connected stuff. But it was expensive. I was I'm constantly asking you about your business models. And I paid for upgrades in the form of, you know, I think I bought an air fryer tray. And- yep. And we and we shipped the air fry baskets with the gourmet package as well. We shipped those three. Oh, yes. So, you know, it felt like you guys had an interesting and I don't know if it was sustainable or not model. So adding a new lower price point, what does that say about the business models you're anticipating going with for the next however long it takes? And where does this take the company? Yeah. So from our perspective, we like to focus on great product and great product experiences. And that's the most important thing. Two of the last businesses I was involved in focused on getting lots of users so that we didn't sell a product. One was a social network and one was a social news site. And the general idea was get lots of eyeballs and figure out how to monetize it later. And Nikhil and I we worked together at the social network. That's one of the things that we didn't like about that business model, because in that world, you can't really have two masters. You either serve customers or you serve the people keeping the lights on. So and usually that you know would be advertisers, for example. And so for us, we want to be able to serve customers. We want to make a product that's high quality, that's worth paying for, that we can build a business around. And literally, Nikhil and I, that was the one requirement when we were decided we wanted to work together before we even had decided that we were going to enter the kitchen space, that we wanted to make something that was worth buying and spending money on and actually be a business. But that is hard. And I say this not to be a jerk, but because even things like Roku, which sells hardware, also makes most of their money on advertising. And you look at the fate of like GoPro and Fitbit, I'm thinking everyone points to Apple, and that's a great place to be. But it's really hard to be Apple. (laughs) It is really hard to be Apple. That is accurate. And it's a big part of our DNA, but we are not an Apple by any means. So should I expect you guys, I mean, are you sustainable just as selling this product for the rest of your life? Do you plan to branch out into other kitchen products? I know a lot of oven companies are now looking at food delivery. If you want to talk about a hard business, that sounds like a really hard business. (laughs) I know that every few weeks there seems to be a company in that space that goes out of business. But from our perspective, we're focused on us. Obviously, we're a venture-backed business and we have relied on that in the past and we look forward to the day when we're not relying on that. But That's a big part of taking a risk on a company like June to be able to bring a product like the June Intelligent Oven to market is that we want to bring a lot of value for our shareholders through great product. And that's always been the mission. Okay, let's flip to your subscription business because you guys launched the recipes. Tell us a little bit about recipes. And I'm curious how that's going. First, you need to try it. So you can either say, wow, it's great, Matt, or nope, you need to work on this, Matt, because I want the feedback either way. So we launched our walkthrough guided cooking. We looked at everything that was out there. And for the most part, recipes online are YouTube videos and flat text files. And sometimes, you know, you can get some fun, cool content from Tasty or something like that. But for us, we didn't see an experience out there that was actually guided cooking. And for us, we have this opportunity to do guided cooking while also having all the right hooks into this oven platform that we've created. And so when you're cooking in the June cookbook, which we charge $4.99 a month for, or is included with for three years with the gourmet package, and you're doing a salmon program where 
teaching you how to perfectly dress that salmon. And then on your iPhone or iPad, we ask you how you'd like your salmon. And obviously, remember preference if you've done this recipe before. Otherwise, you tap medium rare. And then by the time you're at the last step and you finish dressing your salmon and getting it ready to go in the oven, the oven's already expecting salmon and already knows you want it medium rare. So you don't even have to do anything other than put it in and walk away. For us, it's about how do we create great experiences that are going to inspire people to cook more and teach people to cook more. And are you looking to broaden that? I mean, one of the challenges with cooking is people have their own recipes. They want to find stuff everywhere. I feel like it'd be impossible to create these awesome recipe experiences alone as a company. I mean, I search Bon Appetit and Cooking Light, and I own probably 30 cookbooks. So I look at something and paying $5 a month for something that I can't bring all that additional content into. It's kind of like, oh, sadness. So are you looking to be more like of a platform play there, possibly? So for us, we're only in our own ecosystem right now, and that's the current plan. For us, we're making new content on a weekly basis. So we're publishing new uh, recipes to the cookbook on a weekly basis, which is really nice. And another thing that we've noticed, and again, we, we have a lot of this data, is people who are cooking are creatures of habit. Most people cook the same things every week. And I know from my own behavior, I actually wish I was trying new things more often. But I often discover something, and then it just enters the routine. And so... For me with the cookbook, there's two recipes that are in my regular routine now from the June cookbook. One is the air fried chicken. And for me, even though I know the recipe mostly, I still every single week, I watch the looping videos on the iPad of every single step because I tried to cheat once actually. It's a true story. I tried to cheat on the June cookbook. I'm like, oh, I've cooked air fried chicken 14 times. I really don't need to watch the looping videos again. And I forgot one of the most important steps. I literally ruined dinner by skipping this. And so even though I cook it every single week, following those steps and kind of keeping me honest and making sure I don't forget anything is really powerful. And so the air fried chicken is one of those that's in my regular routine. And then the other is there's this amazing Asian salmon dish that the again, the salmon part's super easy, but what goes on top of it is something that I, I need to watch the steps every single time. So talk to me about some of this data that you've got. I know that you guys, for example, you told this story to me, oh, maybe a year ago about people cooking bacon in there. And mm -hmm. you realize that the most important variable in cooking bacon is how many slices people use. And yep. so I'm curious, what kind of data are you seeing both from the oven, but also maybe the recipes and what people are cooking? Bacon came from, it was actually a problem where people were having bad experience with bacon. And so we ended up taking all that data and those conversations and we turned one bacon program into 64 bacon programs. So we now have literally have 64 bacon programs within the gym. And another really cool thing that we were able to do is so now we have over 100 automated cook programs, um, all of them with no preheat. And we would get in the app, people can talk about their cooking experience. They can happy face, sad face their cooking experience. And that'll create a ticket with our customer experience team. And things like our steak program, which in the beginning required a flip in the early days. So there was a three-step program. We would prompt you to flip it at some point. And People had trouble with that. The probe would fall out and it was a hard step. And so we took it upon ourselves and our culinary team to how do we create a cook program that tastes as good or better than the one with the flip to do it with no flip. And we signed up for that challenge. And our steak program is now an eight-step, multi-step cook program. It even includes a rest in the middle of it. And people love it. And it tastes great. Another interesting thing that data-wise was we were able to look at 
all the food that had been cooked in all the June ovens in the world and figure out what and literally stack rank the top foods that we didn't have automated cook programs for so we could create them. And so actually, I think I saw you tweet about it. Reheating of tortillas was a top three use case that we had no cook program for. And now we do. I cannot wait to try it. I've been away from my June for far too long. What are some of the others? I'm just curious. What else are people? Pizza was always very popular in the June and we had a pizza program, but we did not have a yesterday's pizza cook program. Which is totally what you need because, I mean, yes, I'm sure some people do cook pizza in their oven, but yeah, we throw in the reheat, the pizza reheats key. And again, I I was just using the reheat app on the oven. Again, we were seeing, literally, we'd see just slices of pizza just sitting on racks And we'd be like, okay, we need to write a cook program for this. So now we have a yesterday's pizza reheat function. Nice. Does it go on the rack? I always put mine on a tray. Michael Minna recommends putting on a pizza stone under broil. That's his official recommendation. We don't do that within the app, but... Oh, I was like, I was like a pizza stone. That's pretty specialized stuff right there. (laughs) (laughs) It's already a lot to ask me to actually reheat the pizza instead of just shove it in my mouth cold. (laughs) But sometimes I am civilized. Okay, let's quickly talk about some of the gotchas or things that have happened with the oven so far. So I was surprised to see that it's running Android, and this was back in the day. Are you guys still using Android or Android things, or did you use something else for the new version? So for us, we have always built on top of embedded Linux. And on top of that, there are certain frameworks from Android that we've included. But from a design perspective and from a user experience perspective, there's no hint of Android within any of anything we've built. We've stretched the limits of what you can do with embedded Linux and certain frameworks from Android that we wanted to put in there to create what we call June OS. So I don't need to worry about my June OS not being supported in three years or anything like that. <laughs> that is correct. Okay. Can you share with us a sense of how much it costs to support a June oven annually or how much you guys are thinking about from terms of cloud costs, security costs? I know you guys spend a lot of time and effort adding new programs and updating it, which I really appreciate. I don't have a specific dollar answer for you, but from the perspective of one of the design goals when we were designing June is we didn't want it to not work if your Wi-Fi goes down. like That would be the worst experience ever that you can't cook dinner because your Wi-Fi went down. And so We spent a lot of time engineering an experience that doesn't actually require going to the cloud for everyday cooking. So like, for example, our food ID detection all happens locally. And yes, we download updates from the server to make food ID better. But when all the food recognition, all of that happens locally, all of ETA, when we're predicting how long something's going to take to be done, that all of that's done locally. And so, you know, the most intense processing that, that happens, all of that's happening locally. So we've optimized for that, not to save money on cloud storage, but just from a user experience perspective, that's the most important thing. So could I bring a June oven into my house and connect it to my Wi-Fi once and then, you know, chuck the app and just use it normally? You can do that without even connecting to Wi-Fi once. Oh. Yeah. We have customers that have emailed us that have taken it camping and it works great. Again, you don't have connectivity, but if you're running Mm -hmm. recent software, then that's fine. But obviously there's a lot of value to getting software updates because we're always constantly improving the oven. I have many questions about getting the June oven to work in the woods since I am, in fact, going (laughs) camping, but... (laughs) I haven't done it, so I'm not an expert in it, but I know someone who has. (laughs) I really enjoy that they brought it with them. Okay. Yeah. Is there a s'more setting? Let's get real here. (laughs) So there is not a s'more setting, but something you could do is you can 
put the oven on broil and you can actually do some more. I actually did it uh, a few weeks ago and it was pretty amazing. It was actually better than a campfire, which I did not expect. Okay, everyone. On that note, with Matt Van Horn's secret June (laughs) s'mores recipe, I will leave you. So, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. Of course. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week.